So we're in another parable. I want to remind you again as we look at these parables, uh, probably more so than most other portions of Scripture. It certainly applies to all Scripture, but in the parables in particular, context is king. You're probably going to get tired of hearing me say that, but we have to understand the context that the parable is set in if we're going to understand the parable. If we don't understand the context, we're going to find ourselves making up applications and coming up with object lessons and that sort of thing. So uh, our parable for today is in Matthew 18. Now, Matthew 18 is widely known as the church discipline chapter, but that's not all that's in Matthew 18. The first half, indeed, deals with church discipline and how to prevent the loss of a member of the community who either needs to repent from some ongoing sin or be excluded. Now, the goal of Matthew 18, that first half, is not to punish people, it's not to exclude them, but to bring them back into fellowship, to bring them to repentance and to restore them to fellowship. The reason that we have either this repent or exclude is because if somebody is involved in habitual sin, and look, I'm not talking about the type of sin that all of us struggle with at some point. We all have some point of of tension that we have with sin in our lives. I'm talking about outright uh, blatant rebellion against God. I'm talking about somebody who says, yes, I understand that's a sin, but I'm going to do it anyway. I understand this is an offense to God, but it's time for some me time in my life, and I'm going to do what I like. So that needs to be brought to repentance and restored, or it needs to be excluded from the community. And the reason it needs to be excluded from the community is it's a poison. It's a disease in the community. People see that happening and start saying, well, why can't I do the same thing? If there are no repercussions, why can't I do the same thing? So Matthew 18 is about church discipline and restoration or the consequences of non-repentance. Our passage today, which is the parable of the unforgiving servant, talks about the danger of allowing personal offense to poison the community in much the same way. Chapter 18 moves from this idea of discipline into the idea of forgiveness. First half is about discipline, second half is about forgiveness. And here's the setting for the forgiveness part. Jesus just talked about church discipline and repentance, and everybody knows, everybody's aware of the fact that sometimes people repent and there's no change in their behavior. Amen? Sometimes we people get into a situation where they say, I'm sorry, and then nothing changes. And so Peter is aware of this, and Peter kind of opens up this thing on church discipline ends up, and Peter's kind of like, well, what, what about those people that repent and just keep on doing it? What, 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 what happens there? And we see that in this question that Peter asks in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now there's some meat to what Peter's doing here. So he's really kind of extending himself a bit. Traditional Jewish teaching, the oral tradition of the elders that was handed down, said that you should forgive somebody as many as three times. And if after having forgiven them three times, they haven't changed their behavior, well, then there are consequences. Those consequences could be severe as stoning. The Mishnah 
which is a commentary and a compendium of the oral traditions, says you only need to do it twice. So Peter wants to know if someone persists, Jesus, we as your followers, people who are trying to emulate you, I know you're a, a Lord of grace and mercy. I know you're a Lord of truth. So how many times do you say we should forgive them? Should we go three times as many as tradition says? I mean, should we really extend ourselves and go two to three times as many as we've been taught? I mean, how far does this go? It's a, it, it, it's a perfectly adequate question, and it's perfectly justified. The answer is startling, and it shows up in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, a little bit of something lost in the translation here. I think the King James Version has a, actually a better translation that gives us more of the impact of what's being said. The King James says 70 times 7. So this is not Jesus putting a limitation on the amount of forgiveness. This is not Jesus saying, well, start now, okay, Scott, you just offended me, and I'm going to forgive you. You've got 489 left, <laughs> okay? This is Jesus saying, the number of times you should forgive is uncountable. Who can practically track the number of times we forgive if we're looking at this huge number? You're saying, so there is no limit to the number of times you forgive. Now, why would Jesus tell Peter something like that? I mean, how far does this go? When do we run out of patience? When do we run out of mercy? When do we run out of grace? Well, what we're going to see is that Peter should go on forgiving because the reality of his own forgiveness should manifest itself in the way Peter forgives other people. Peter's been forgiven a lot. Peter should forgive a lot. And Jesus is going to use this parable of the unforgiving servant to, to demonstrate this. This title of this sermon is Stories that Change the World, the Unforgiving Servant, part of our ongoing series into parables. Now, the passage rolls out in three scenes. In verses 23 through 27, we see the king's forgiveness. In verses 28 through 30, we see the servant's fierceness. And in verse 31 through 35, we see the king's fury. I had to work on that middle one, the fierceness, uh, ferocity, whatever. It, I needed an F in there, okay? So, and here's a truth that we need to appropriate from this passage. Our forgiveness is the evidence that we have been forgiven. Our forgiveness is the evidence that we have been forgiven. So let's take a look at scene one, the king's forgiveness. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven... Now, what Jesus is saying, you know, when he, when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, there are all sorts of teachings out there about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom to come, the kingdom that will be, the kingdom, and so on and so forth. What, what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven, uh, I mean, Jesus is constantly saying, go tell the Pharisees the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, go tell the people in the town the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's talking about himself. He's talking about people that are his disciples. He's talking about people that are following him, people that have recognized him as the Messiah, people that are in him. So he's saying, if you're in my kingdom and you want to see what forgiveness looks like, here it is. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
It's the first echo we get of our Father in Heaven being similar to this King. Our Father in Heaven who will one day have a day of accounting for everybody, who will one day stand in judgment of everybody. So here he is settling accounts. And verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let me give you an idea of what this number means. Uh, it's kind of hard to translate it into a dollar figure for today, but here it is. It's roughly the equivalent of $3 billion. This servant owes the king the equivalent of $3 billion. He's not a man of means. He's a servant. And he's run up this debt somehow of $3 billion. And verse 25, and since he could not pay, I mean, duh, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had. Now, what he's talking about when he's talking about being sold here, he's saying being sold into slavery. This is a traditional way of paying off a debt. It was never enough to fully pay the debt, but it was the only recourse that a master would have. Uh, We see this as a form of punishment. As far back as 1 Kings chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 5, you can take a look at that later on and see what's going on there. So, and he, he tells the servant, so I'm going to sell you, and I'm not just going to sell you, I'm going to sell you and all of your family. And what that means to the servant is that they're probably not going to be together. This family is going to be scattered, and the king will take that as satisfaction for his debt. So, in verse 26, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience. Listen to what he says. Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. The servant is saying, oh, give me a couple days. I'll raise the money. Have a little bit of patience with me. I'm going to pay you. There's no way in the world this guy is going to be able to pay $3 billion. If all of his friends got together and he went to every bank he had and maxed out every credit card he had, he wouldn't get anywhere near $3 billion. He's asking for a ridiculous amount of consideration here. But he's desperate. And the king sees that. And in verse 27, and out of pity, out of compassion, out of mercy for him, the servant, the wise king knows that the servant can't pay. Look what he does. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. What an incredible amount of compassion. I see how distraught you are. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not only going to cancel the debt, I'm going to release you. You can go back to your family. You go back to the community. You can consider yourself paid up. So scene one is in the context of the kingdom of God is like this. And we see this incredibly powerful metaphor for a forgiving God. For a loving God who displays grace towards those who offend him. A loving God who displays mercy towards those who can't pay their debt. It's us, brothers and sisters. Let's take a look at scene two, the servant's fierceness. And and this is how the servant reacts. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. You know how much this is? Using the same factors. It's about 5,000 bucks. It's not beyond reason. It's reachable. It's hard. But it it, it, it could be raised 
And so he owed him 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He, he makes the same claim that this, this mad servant made to the king. The mad servant receives grace. How does he react? Verse 30, he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now listen. When you're in prison in those days, it's nasty. There are rats all over the place. The food was terrible. Sanitation was non-existent. You're usually chained to a wall. Guards would come in and beat you at any time they wanted to. Couldn't see the family. Sometimes you could, but not very often. And the big thing about being in prison is you don't earn any money. So being put in prison over a debt means that the debt never gets paid. You stay in prison for the rest of your life. Puts this guy in prison and paying is impossible. It's a more severe punishment than being sold into slavery. So the servant shows no compassion in a very small matter, even though he's received incredible grace in a very large matter. That takes us to the king's fury in scene 3, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So his friends go and rat him out. We saw what happened. We saw what happened between you and the king. We saw what you did with that servant over there. So they go and tell the master. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. Now, a judgment is passed on this this servant. He's called wicked. He's called evil. And what we see is after receiving this incredible grace, the true nature of the servant rises up inside him, and we find that he's evil. He's godless. The king says, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Now what we see here is that the grace that the king has afforded this servant should have had an impact on the servant. It should have changed him. There should have been some transformation inside the servant that caused him to want to exhibit the type of grace that he received. Should have made him grateful for for being set free. There should have been some evidence of change in the servant because of the mercy and grace that was poured out on him. In verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And again, now he's in the situation that he put the other servant in. He can't pay the debt. I mean, it's $3 billion. He can't pay it anyway. But now there's no hope at all because he can't earn any money. He's absolutely hopeless. Repayment is impossible. The debt remains. And then Jesus kind of wraps all this up with one comment in verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Servant has received mercy, but he hasn't been transformed. He's not grateful, not appreciative, 
doesn't recognize the gift the king has offered him, and now, at that point of judgment, he's beyond hope. So those, those are our three scenes. We've seen the forgiveness of the king. We've seen the fierceness of the servant. Then we've seen the fury of the king. And the clear message that we should get from this little parable is that we should forgive unconditionally. Unconditionally. We don't put conditions on our forgiveness. We don't, we don't put trappings around it. We should forgive unconditionally. The servant who owed the $3 billion was forgiven unconditionally. So forgiveness, our forgiveness is the evidence that we have been forgiven. It's the evidence of our change, the evidence of our transformation, the evidence that the Spirit is working inside us. So we all know that, amen? Everybody who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ as Savior, everybody who has confessed their sins, repented from their ways, admitted that He is the Son of God and has received eternal life, we know we're supposed to forgive. Somebody say amen. Thank you. But that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to forgive. I mean, let's be honest with each other. In some cases, it might be the most difficult thing we've ever done. Why is it so hard to forgive? I mean, I don't think it was hard for God to forgive us. All he had to do was sacrifice his only son on the cross. It's hard to forgive because because people hurt us. People disappoint us. People fail to meet our expectations. People injure us, sometimes physically, sometimes they break our hearts. And the pain, the pain doesn't just go away. We can't, we can't ignore it. We can't slap a smiley face on it and say, oh, it's going to be okay, don't worry about it. It was nothing. So, so we have to work at forgiving. We have to strive to forgive. It's counterintuitive to us. When somebody strikes us, when we feel the pain, we want to strike back. Some of us will do it with our hands. Some of us will do it with our words. Why? Why should we work at forgiving if it's so hard? Well, we should work at forgiving for the same reason that the unrepentant sinner in the first half of Matthew 18 has to either repent or be excluded. His lack of repentance is a disease, one that can be fatal to him and one that can spread. You see, the lack of forgiveness is the same thing. It's the same type of disease, one that can spread. I mean, we refuse to exhibit grace. We refuse to distribute mercy to somebody. And they retaliate by withholding grace and mercy in the same way. Maybe they do it to somebody that's not us. And then they retaliate. Do you see how this sort of thing spreads? So, and, and if that's not bad enough, that lack of forgiveness is a disease that will eat us up from the inside out. It'll burn away everything we have in our spirit. 
we will become dominated by bitterness, by anger. And the irony of all that is that lack of forgiveness doesn't hurt the one that we refuse to forgive. It hurts us. It cuts us off from the Father. And it permeates everything we do. Dominates our thoughts throughout the day. Forgiveness is hard. But when we forgive, brothers and sisters, if we understand what's going on in this parable, when we forgive, what we do is we put the gospel on display. We become a reflection of the forgiveness and the mercy that we have received. Our testimony comes through not just our proclamation of the gospel, not just our sharing of the gospel with other people, but how we live that gospel out. We put our transformation on display. See, that's, that's what the servant was unable to do. He was unable to show anybody that he had been changed by the grace he'd received from the king. Okay. Let's talk about some practical applications. Let me tell you one thing, two things, that forgiveness is not. Because we don't, we, we don't want to misapply this, okay? Forgiveness is not forgetting. We, we can't wipe these things from our mind. We can't just ignore them. Uh, we can't pretend like they never happened. We have to deal with them. So we can, however, refuse to hold the past against someone who has hurt us. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we should not hold into account a wrong suffered. Now, why would, why would God tell us not to do that? Because he hasn't done that with us. God's not beating us up over the things that we've done that have offended him. God is not sitting on the throne going, well, you know, Conrad, I forgive you, but there was that little incident back in 1997 when you stole that candy. I can see you stole some candy in 1997. <laughs> so we, we refuse to allow that to enter into the discussion, enter into our dialogue, enter into our attitude about this person. But we do look for gospel transformation. We do look for the change that occurs. So we don't forget. We, we, are, we are on our toes, not, not in anger, not in bitterness, not looking for a way to condemn somebody, but as a way of being prudent. So we don't forget, and we don't allow ourselves to be abused. We don't use forgiveness as an excuse to experience abuse. We, have, we establish healthy, godly boundaries, and they should be established firmly, not as punishment, but as a practical way of dealing with this. So those are two things that forgiveness is not. Let me tell you what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is a refusal to nurture anger and resentment. I mean, we love to do that as human beings. We love to take our pain out and show it to people. Like, a, look at what I've been through. Isn't this magnificent? Do you know anybody who has suffered like I have suffered? I am an incredible martyr. Look at the burden I carry around with me all the time. And we stroke it. And we play the tapes in our mind over and over and over again. And every time we play the tape, we get just a little bit more angry, a little bit more bitter. And it takes more and more control over us. So we refuse to go down that path. Now that can be hard. 
That could be hard. And we could read this passage and think that every time we drop the ball, that God is out to get us, that he's got some kind of huge hammer, and we're some kind of whack-a-mole thing, that I didn't forgive, bang, bang, bang. That's not what this is about. God knows that we're not going to be perfect in this. And he has tremendous patience and tremendous mercy. He's not out to get us. But we should have some sort of desire to be working towards exhibiting the type of forgiveness that we have received. So it's a refusal to nurture anger and resentment. It's an expression of compassion and mercy. And if we do have compassion and mercy, then we will have a sorrow over the soul for the one who hurt us. And finally, forgiveness is thankfulness that our Father in heaven, not us, that our Father in heaven will have the last word. The judgment, the condemnation is up to him, not up to us. Finally, everything we do should be infused with love, should be infused with mercy and grace, and we should forgive. And even as I stand here, there are people who are listening to me right now that are saying, but how many times? We could go back over the passage again. Or we could just say, how many times has God forgiven us? How many times have I done exactly what he told me not to do? How many times have I justified my behavior? How many times have I explained to God why I should be able to withhold forgiveness at this point? And God has still forgiven us. Praise God that we have a God who is far more patient than the king that we see in this passage. Praise God that his grace is limitless, that his mercy is never-ending. Praise God that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, he is conforming us to his image and making us into a model of that vessel of grace and forgiveness that we're called to be. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I'm going to ask the deacons and the deacon helpers to come forward. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Communion is an opportunity for us to look back on the sacrifice that was made for us. It gives us this opportunity to engage in this sacrament. But we've just heard a strong message on the way our hearts should be towards the people around us. So this is an opportunity to do business with the Holy Spirit. If you're harboring any resentment, if, if when I talk about forgiveness, somebody's picture popped up in your mind, you probably need to listen carefully not just pray forgiveness on that person, but repent from not forgiving. Remove that impediment between you and your Father in heaven so that when we take these elements, we can experience the unity, the blessing, and the cleansing that the sacraments offer us. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that, and then we'll distribute. We'll take the bread together, and then we'll distribute the juice, and we'll take that together. We hold in our hands the crust of bread that intended to represent the body of Christ. We should see it on two different levels. And one on a level that it represents the body that was tortured, 
nailed to a cross for us so that, so that he could take on our sins so that we might be able to enter into this moment that remembers the sacrifice. But we also see the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. We also see the unity, the union that we have in Jesus Christ. The sacrifice made that possible. So when he says, take and eat, what he's saying is, become part of me. Recognize that you and I and a father are one. Recognize that you're one with each other. And recognize the fact that this body that was offered up as a sacrifice has allowed this to happen. Take and eat. So this little cup represents the blood of Christ. See, the blood of Christ, that that shed blood, kind of looks back to the Old Testament sacrifice, uh, but the Old Testament sacrifices were a pale imitation of what was to come. Through the Old Testament, we recognize that the shedding of blood has to occur in order for the atonement to occur. When Jesus comes, fully man, fully God, he sheds his blood to atone for our sins. The blood of God that cleanses us, that restores us, that reconciles us to the Father. The blood that makes the union that we're talking about possible. Take and drink.